0: One of the things that any study of ancient culture can do is is help us understand some of the details in scripture. I'm a firm believer in the clarity of scripture so that the general truth of scripture that God is uh, from the very beginning of our rebellion against him has has sought to redeem humanity and has done so uh, especially in his son uh, Jesus and his death and resurrection. That is clear I think Anybody looking at scripture can see that. But when we start looking at the details of passages and and wanting to know more, uh, the more we know about culture can help us with that.
1: Welcome to The Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with David Chapman. David currently serves as professor of New Testament and archaeology at Covenant Theological Seminary and previously worked as director of the Abila Archaeological Excavation in Jordan. He's also served as the New Testament editor for the ESV Archaeology Study Bible from Crossway. Today, David and I discuss what it's like to be an archaeologist. He shares from his experiences overseeing an excavation site in the Middle East, explains how archaeology can bolster our faith and enhance our understanding of the Bible, and reflects on the most exciting archaeological discovery of his career. Let's get started. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast.
0: Thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm glad to be with you.
1: So you teach archaeology at Covenant Theological Seminary, and on your bio page at the school's website, there's this picture of you at the top of the page, uh, standing outside, I think, and pointing to what looks to be an old map. And you're wearing a hat that is somewhat reminiscent of something a certain famous archaeologist would wear. And so my first question is, in what other ways are you like a real-world Indiana Jones?
0: <laughs> well, I think in very few. No, no it's, it's uh, obviously a, a common uh, theme that people ask when they talk to archaeologists. Uh, if Indiana Jones is at all uh, true and accurate, and uh, the truth is uh, life is much more mundane on a dig. You're just out in the hot sun um, with, a, you know, with a brush or a trowel, slowly moving dirt from side to side, and it's, it's not quite as exciting. Uh,
1: so, so what is, just to kind of jump into uh, maybe some of the things that you've been a part of, what's the most exciting, uh, maybe just personally, archaeological discovery that you've been a part of?
0: Yeah, so um, for about four years, I was uh, helping to direct or I was directing an excavation in Jordan at Abila, which is uh, a city fairly close to the Galilee in an area that's known as the Decapolis, which uh, Jesus went through the Decapolis. And uh, I think one of the most exciting things, it was really, it's it's always a team effort, archaeology. And what we had the privilege of seeing is over years seeing uh Byzantine churches, so early churches, churches about roughly say 1,400, 1,500 years old being excavated with beautiful beautiful mosaic floors. And uh, you could just tell that it was a glorious structure. And it was uh, such a joy to see that and also to see, in a sense, our ancestors in the faith and how much effort they had put into uh, beautifying the space that they used for worship. So that's one of the things that really stuck out in my mind.
1: Hmm. How, how deep or how far under the the normal current surface of the ground would you be finding these these structures or these churches or these mosaics?
0: Yeah, so it's a great question. It, it varies, really. It, we're on the side of two hills that in archaeology we would call tells because they are actually multiple habitation uh, over the years hills. And so often these structures have been built on top of or there's been collapse due to earthquake. And so uh, it kind of depends on the contour of the land and the hill. So in some areas, you know, we would be going down, uh, archaeologists think in terms of meters, but a couple of meters, so about two yards, about six feet down to get to uh, the top of a course of uh, a wall and then another couple of meters to get to the floor. So, so it, may, it can be anywhere from, say, six to 12 feet. And then a much deeper, if we're going down to earlier materials. So we have one square that's down to about a thousand years before the time of Abraham. Uh, it would be early bronze is the archeology span designation. And that's a good 40 or 50 feet down, actually, to get down to that layer.
1: Hmm. So how do you know like, what time period you're at as you dig down?
0: Yeah, so as you dig down, um, you kind of think of it in terms of a layer cake. And each layer is a different strata of history. And so the most recent ones are going to be at the top. The oldest ones are going to be at the bottom. And as you're going down, you're trying to capture various materials that give you an, a sense of date. The, the principal one that archaeologists use is pottery, because uh, pottery ch- styles changed fairly regularly in antiquity. You know, So every few hundred years or so, you would see a, a very different style of pottery or different kind of materials used in pottery so that's one of the things that you use to kind of capture it uh sometimes people make a comparison if you you know compare modern coke bottles to ancient coke bottles I guess we use cans even and so you know but you look at coke bottles a hundred years ago and if if you know what you're looking for you can say oh this is one from the 1920s or this is from the 1960s and, and similarly, archaeologists can do that with pottery. So that's one of your main methods of dating. There are other things as well, like radiocarbon dating and um, the dating of architectural materials, the design and such like that. So so you're just watching for those kind of elements as you get down. If you're really lucky, you find a coin uh, because a coin has the face of a, of a ruler on it and a, a year stamp. And so you, you have a sense of when you are more precisely
1: so you mentioned that you were part of this Abila archaeological project in Jordan. Um, how do you how do you know where to dig?
0: You start by looking at the surface, it, and you're usually, especially with something like Abila, we knew there was a city named Abila, and so this happened actually long before I was with the excavation. But the first excavator went out, kind of looking for that city, and. Uh, We had some descriptions, Uh, Eusebius had said that it was about nine miles from another city. And we had a general sense of where it was. And so you go looking for where city sites are likely to be. And in antiquity, usually these are on top of hills. And so you look on top of hills and you see what remains on the surface. And from that, you kind of estimate, oh, there seems to be a lot on the surface here. It's worth digging here. And so you start with that, but it may actually be decades until you actually know for sure that you're at the right site. So in our case, we were excavating for almost 20 years before we came down on in an inscription that clearly indicated that this was the site of Abila.
1: So you're actually, you're you really can't confirm until you find you know that like that sign at the front of the city gate saying welcome to abila <laughs> yeah.
0: well we we wish it was even that clear uh in this case we we were really very fortunate there was a um, a water tunnel that had been uh and it needed some some clearing and, and reconstructing and there was a a a panel that was installed on the side of the water tunnel that mentioned that the bishop of abila helped sponsor the clearing of the water tunnel wow um yeah, rarely in antiquity did they bother even putting a, you know, a, a welcome to a a thing at the front of the city, although that would just be great if they had thought to do that for later archaeologists thousands of years later, so.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so so walk us through a day in the life of an archaeologist. You know, when you're actually on a dig, uh, what, what would the day look like, you know, from the moment you woke up to the moment you go to bed?
0: Yeah, well... Uh, I mean, the one way to start with that is to recognize, especially because we're there excavating kind of when we have a break in the school year. So in other words, in the summer, um, it can be 110, 120 degrees in the shade in the afternoon. So you want to start early and get out of the field early. So usually we set the alarm at four o'clock and wake everybody up. Uh, you can imagine they're delighted for that. <laughs> and we, <laughs> we wake them at four and we try and be in the field uh, uh, just after five o'clock. Um, as soon as the sun's coming up. Uh, you need enough sunlight so you can see what you're doing. Um, also, early in the day is a great time. The colors aren't washed out by the sun. So you can uh, examine the soil more carefully, see changes in soil layers. It's a good time to take photographs. So we try and get there at, kind of at the break of, of day. And then we stay as long as we can. So about noon or one o'clock on a cooler day. And uh, and during that time, uh, Doing a variety of things. Mostly, of course, you're you've laid out small squares. Um, you lay them out a meter, so four meters by four meters, so roughly four yards by four yards, and uh, and then you excavate. Uh, you know, two or three people in a square, slowly going down, kind of layer by layer, watching for every change in the soil. And as soon as you see a change, you you, you fill out more paperwork and you. Make sure that everything's cleared down to that layer, and then you move down to the next layer. So it's pretty meticulous. Uh, then you come home, you have lunch around noon or 1, and, and then uh, take a nap, because you're pretty w- wasted. <laughs> and then in the afternoon, um, you do uh, analysis of the pottery, and you're drawing things back at the camp and things like that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think I've seen pictures of you know the squares that you mentioned. They're often, I think, made with rope kind of going crisscrossing. A site. What, what's the purpose of breaking up the dig into these these little squares?
0: Yeah, that's great. It's you know that's something that um, archaeologists have been doing for about a hundred years or so now, and uh, the, the purpose of that really has been it gives us a very nice grid. One, one of the things about archaeology is as soon as you dig something up, you've removed it and nobody else can find it there in that context again. So you're having to take very careful records of where you find things so that you can reconstruct, uh, you know, better than your memory can uh, exactly where you found stuff. And then especially so that later generations of people can come along and look at your same data and reconstruct what you found. So primarily you lay out a grid so that you can define exactly where things are found um, kind of on a, if you would, kind of, if you're looking at the surface of it, an X, Y axis. And then you're also taking levels as you go down to have the z-axis. So, so you have uh, you know, a, a three-dimensional sense of space of where you found it. So that's principally why you do that. And then uh, you, you leave about a meter of soil between each square. And the goal of that is, uh, first, if you look at kind of the wall of soil as you go down, you can see the changes in the soil colors. And every time that soil changes, you are you may be at a different layer of habitation. So you're paying attention to that. And then uh, one other practical thing is that meter of soil, uh, on top of it, you can run your wheelbarrows, you know, because otherwise you can't run them in and out of the squares. So, you, so you're lifting things up to the wheelbarrow on top of that and getting that soil out of the way. So there's a lot of practical kind of things for for why you lay it out in those grids.
1: So... Then when we turn to scripture and the Christian faith, um, why why is it helpful to understand some of the archaeological background to the Bible when we actually go to our Bibles? I think sometimes it can feel like it's such a literally a distant thing, um, and we have the words of scripture right right in front of us. Uh, what can archaeological research add to that uh, beyond what we already have?
0: That's a great question. Uh, I think um, often when I talk to fellow Christians and, and I say I do archaeology, uh, they're most immediately interested in ways that archaeology can help defend the historicity of Scripture. And certainly anytime you excavate any historical site, uh, be it a Christian site or if you're excavating at Troy or something like that, you're you're helping understand something about history and showing that the writings that we have from history are uh, can be verified. And that's especially true, of course, for the Bible. But I actually think that's not the most important thing. Um, for, for one, very little of what we excavate can demonstrate that kind of historical corroboration. Uh, but everything we excavate tells us something about ancient culture. And uh, there's several things about that. I think, for one, it just really helps us to imagine, rightly, what life was like in the time of Jesus or in the time of King David. Um, so it, it it brings us back into that moment which I think is is rewarding for people but beyond that I would argue it's actually necessary at some level because anytime that we communicate so even as you and I are communicating right now I could tell you a, a sentence because I know you know you live in the United States we both live in the 21st century so I can I can make a joke about baseball or something and I'll, I'll know you can resonate with it But if you can easily imagine that if we move 2,000 years in the future, uh, those very same words would not have the meaning that they do to us because the culture shifted and there's things that I talk about that people won't know about 2,000 years from now. And so one of the things that uh, any study of ancient culture can do is is help us understand some of the details in Scripture. I'm a firm believer in the clarity of Scripture, what theologians will talk about the perspicuity of scripture, so that the general truth of scripture that God is, uh, from the very beginning of uh, our rebellion against him, has has sought to redeem humanity and has done so, uh, especially in his son, uh, Jesus, and his death and resurrection. That is clear. I think anybody looking at scripture can see that. But when we start looking at the details of passages and and wanting to know more, uh, the more we know about culture can help us with that. And I think especially with something like the Old Testament, where we're even more distant from it than we are from, say, the Roman culture of Jesus' day. Uh, archaeology is a key to helping us really imagine what's going on and understand better the scriptures.
1: Hmm. So as you think about, then, some key archaeological discoveries that relate to the Bible and the, the people and events and places that we read about there— Are there two or three that stand out to you as particularly good examples of the the value we can get from uh, archaeology when it comes to better understanding the ancient world?
0: Let me take a couple of favorite examples. Um, One for me, uh, so I often take groups from our seminary over to Israel, and we try and catch up with some of the more recent um, excavations and such. And uh, one interesting excavation that's still ongoing, uh, but one of the great finds was made just in the last uh, oh, several years, uh, was a synagogue in a place called Magdala. Um, this is on the west uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's on a major uh, road, a major trade route. It's the road that you would take if you're going from Nazareth uh, to, say, Capernaum. And uh, Magdala is famous because there's a lady in the New Testament, Mary Magdalene, and uh, that Magdalene indicates that she's from Magdala. There's a synagogue that's been found there that is a first century synagogue. Uh, We know it's first century because it was destroyed uh, when the Romans swept through in 70 AD. And so it was the synagogue that was there when Jesus was, um, was walking through the land. And of course, Jesus goes from synagogue to synagogue, Ma'bdil is not mentioned by name in the New Testament, but uh, Jesus goes throughout the Galilee, goes through the synagogues, and this has got to be one of the places he was. It's it's not super big. It's maybe twice the size of my bedroom at home, um, and uh, and so it's not large, but it's this neat rectangle. It's got seating in the center kind of all around the square, so you can see where the person would have stood uh, or sat um, as they Read scripture and then uh, uh, spoke about it, and so it's just very vivid and brings back a sense of oh, this is this is the kind of structure that Jesus would have been in in his day, and so that's um, that's one example right there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that that right there though is just so amazing to think that. I mean, I, am I hearing you right that you think it's possible that Jesus would have actually been in that specific synagogue?
0: Yes, I I do think that, I, and I'm I'm reticent to say that too often. I think you know if you take a tour of Israel or, or other kind of biblical lands, the tour guides are quick to try and point out connections that may or may not be accurate. But this is this is a pretty good one. I'm I'm pretty confident on this, and and um, yeah, so it's just very vivid to to think that our Lord at one point was standing there teaching the the people that were gathered to hear the word of God.
1: Well, and I'd have. To me, it seems like that's that could be one of the, the benefits of archaeology generally, but even visiting places like the Holy Land, where you can see some of these sites, is it reminds us in, in pretty powerful ways that uh, these things that we read in Scripture, these things that we believe about Jesus and about His disciples and, uh, and others, they really happened. We, we believe in a historical faith, uh, rooted in real places and real events and real people, and that's just sort of—it's cool to be reminded reminded of that in such a direct way.
0: Yes, you're you're entirely correct. In, in fact, when I take people over to Israel, that's something that they often say. Um, I I don't try and generate a kind of a special spiritual experience for people there. Um, some people want to go to the Holy Land and have it radically change their spiritual experience. Um, I'm looking when people go there to just get a greater sense of the reality of the faith and then a sense of the cultures so that they can understand the Old and New Testament better. And that is something that they frequently mention is that when they go to, you know, a synagogue like that one in Magdala or when they go up on the temple Mount or just under it, where there's been a street that's been excavated from the time of Jesus or uh, they're, excavating now um, uh, even more streets in that area. There's the pool of Siloam and each of those places we know that Jesus walked along. We we can't show you exactly the footprint of Jesus or anything, but it it gives this greater sense that these things really happened. And like you say, we have historical faith. God has acted in history. He's redeemed us through those actions in history. So it's vitally important that we have a sense of the reality of that.
1: Mm. Yeah, maybe share one other specific example of an archaeological discovery uh, that that sort of sheds new light on scripture.
0: So I'm just teaching a Sunday school class right now, and we're going through the book of First and Second Samuel. And uh, one of the amazing things to do is to just see the geography example of the land there, and to see. Uh, kind of what Jerusalem would have been like in the time of Jesus. If, if you see pictures of modern Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, Jesus, I meant King David. Um, if you if you see a, a kind of modern Jerusalem, there's the walls around the old city, and you assume that those must be the. That's how the city's always looked. It's been within those walls. It's those are the old. That's the old city after all. But actually, David's area. The, the place that he inhabited and, and his palace structure is outside those walls. It's south of that, near near where there is an ancient uh, spring, and so you can see as you go there. And there's been more and more excavation done there. They've, they've even found a structure that the excavator thinks may be a palace from the time of David or Solomon, and and so it could be the very place that you know he he ruled from. Um, but you get a sense of okay, this is not a large space. Um, just a few thousand people would have lived there. It helps you scale down what you think an ancient city was, but it also gives you a sense of, you know, David's palace would have been on top here looking down across the valley. He would have been able to survey his, you know, his capital, his kingdom there. You can also imagine sadly him kind of looking from his rooftop down below and seeing Bathsheba, for example. Uh, you can also see uh the kinds of structures that were used, the wall line for protecting the city, and, and, and you get a, just a vivid sense of this is what life would have been like in the time of King David. Um, similarly, you can go out and look at the geography uh, a bit west of Jerusalem, several miles west, and, and as you go out, you, you begin to see coming down from the hills into these kind of foothills and valleys. And it's down there that David would have met Goliath, for example. And so, though we don't have a specific archaeological site, that's kind of, this is where David met Goliath. We have these fortress-like structures that show where the Israelites would have been arrayed against the Philistines. And we can see the, the valley that's described in the Bible and, and know, okay, we're in the right region. This gives us a sense of what this looked like in antiquity.
1: Wow. That's that's fascinating. In looking at some of the things that you've published over the years, I was struck by how much you've written on the topic of ancient crucifixion. And so I was kind of just curious, why such an interest in such an unpleasant subject?
0: Yeah, um, well, it is a very unpleasant subject, um, especially what I've done with it is I've, I've tried to isolate all ancient writings that talk about any crucifixion of any any person. Um, my initial work was done um, looking at uh, crucifixions that Jewish people would have seen or experienced and then expanding to kind of all Greco-Roman crucifixions and even their precursors in the ancient Near East. And so you're just looking at, uh, I mean, it's death after death and humanity being uh, cruel to fellow human beings. Um, And so it is, it's a, yeah, it's a a daunting topic and, and something that at times just had to step away from because you, 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 you know, you read some horrible texts at the same time, it gives us a sense of vividness of how crucifixion was performed. Certainly the kinds of people that went to the cross, you know, in Judea, the main people that were crucified would have been either kind of brigands. Um, So, you know, we, the new Testament talks about, uh, often it's translated as thieves or robbers, but these are, The term, the Greek term is uh, laestai, and it refers to people who rob by violence. So these are, um, you know, they beat people over the head and they'd steal their wallets. It's it's kind of what's described when the Good Samaritan, you know, the the person who's robbed in the Good Samaritan narrative, how he's beaten and left for dead. So those kind of criminals, brigands you would send to the cross, or rebels against the Roman Empire. Those are two major categories. And so... As you study that, it becomes even more apparent then that you go back and read the Gospels and Jesus is crucified between two brigands. So these really horrible uh, people who had robbed and beat other people, he's crucified between them. He's associated with them. He's effectively being called one of them. Uh, He's being charged with rebellion because he's king of the Jews. um, And so he's rebelling against the Roman government. And this is the kind of uh, people he's associating with in his death. And so you get a sense of the horror of what he endured physically, but also just the, um, the shame, the, um, the way that the, uh, the Romans and the Jewish people around him would have viewed him. Uh, Jewish people associated this kind of death with uh, the curse of God described in Deuteronomy 21. And so it would seem to them that this man is being cursed at the same time he's being crucified. And so we, we get a, a greater sense of what Jesus endured on our behalf, uh, that we would have the redemption of his sacrificial death, and then ultimately the hope of his resurrection.
1: So in Jesus's day, how often were crucifixions happening? I, I think most of our listeners would, you know would be familiar enough with the story to know that you know, the Romans were technically the ones who would carry out that sentence against people, uh, against criminals, as, you, as you've as you mentioned. How frequent was that kind of an act? Uh, were people passing that like every day or was it like a once a week kind of thing? Or what do we know about that?
0: Yeah, so I, I can't fully answer your question in a sense because uh, no ancient text directly says, okay, we experienced crucifixions weekly or... Every day, um, what we see is anytime you have to put a brigand to death, this is this is your major method of doing it. Suppress a rebellion, this is what you do. And so, what we see uh, more are not so much texts that kind of report on the daily occurrence, but often um, when a rebellion is put down, you would have dozens, maybe hundreds of people. In some cases, uh, many hundreds of people would be crucified in the course of a day or a few days. And so uh, it would certainly be uh, experienced by the audience, familiar, but that's kind of too weak of a term. It's something that they would know. Um, certainly, maybe more even by um, the quantity and the stories of the hundreds of people that have been passed down from, you know, uh, my mom saw hundreds of people crucified because the Romans put down this rebellion. And it could be something that they see fairly regularly um, again, suppressing brigandage. Uh, but we we can't speak to that as much as we can. We know that hundreds, even thousands, uh, Josephus will speak of thousands. He's a first century Jewish historian. And he'll speak on, on in those kind of numbers of people being crucified in these major events as the Romans come in to suppress rebellion.
1: Hmm. And what was the, the purpose behind it? I mean, because clearly they don't have a conception of criminal justice that like we're trying to rehabilitate people or... Uh, change them. It, it really feels, it, it's so brutal and so public. What were they going for uh, by doing that?
0: Yeah, I think uh, in terms of what they're doing, uh, to, to a large degree, it's a deterrent. You, you see this uh, certainly in the suppression of rebellion, to, to crucify uh, hundreds of people, to do such a long, drawn out, painful, shameful death. Um, that That's going to, I think the Romans are hoping to dissuade others from engaging rebellion. Uh, You also see another major use of crucifixion is in war, and often uh, you would, if if there's a city that's opposing your rule, once you capture the city, you would take the rulers outside the city and crucify them outside the city. And this uh, events like this, maybe not using a form quite like crucifixion, but the public hanging up of a body. Uh, for days at a time outside the gates of a city is something that had been done for at least 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. And that's, again, a a method of deterrence to kind of say, if if you're going to not submit to us, this is what we're going to do to you and to your leaders. And so it's, it's a form of deterrence, both militarily and in terms of uh, kind of a formal legal punishment. Um, I think also it's, you know, as with many forms of, um, kind of horrendous, uh, punishments, we do that to, to indicate also how horribly we view the crime. So we're saying that rebellion, a brigandage, these are some of the worst crimes you can do in the Roman world. And we're going to par- punish them more harshly than we do any other kind of crime as well. Hmm.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, my guess is that for many of us, uh, you know, our maybe most visceral understanding of crucifixion has come from, you know, the movie that came out a number of years ago, The Passion of the Christ, which just kind of to an unprecedented level. you know, Christ's crucifixion and death has been has been uh, displayed or uh, you know, visually displayed in different movies through the years, but I think in artwork for that matter, but that movie, in particular, kind of took it to a new level. I'm curious if you've seen the movie and if you uh, how accurate you think that uh, portrayal of crucifixion of Jesus's crucifixion in particular uh actually was
0: yeah, uh, well, it's a great question, and I remember when the movie came out, I did see it, and um I, in fact, I was asked uh several points to kind of review it or to talk with a group of people about it as well. and so um I think people who left that movie were struck by the level of violence um, that Mel Gibson kind of worked into that movie. And I I think the brutality that's represented there is actually pretty accurate in terms of just the, the blood and gore of the event and such. Uh, I mean, he certainly really wanted to dwell on that in ways I would say that the scriptures don't. So the scriptures don't principally want us to leave with a sense of how Uh, Violent and bloody the death was. They want to leave us with the sense that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, that he he was doing this on our behalf, and that he was doing it to provide a ransom for our sins. So I think there may be a little shift there in terms of people who just leave with an overwhelming sense of violence. That's maybe not quite what the gospels want to do. And he did throw in some uh, non-historical stuff. So he went through what are called the the stations of the cross. And uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can go and stop at each of the stations of the cross and review these events from that last moments of Jesus. But at least some of the stations of the cross are really represented more in terms of medieval tradition. So the handing of a, a veil over for Jesus to wipe his brow and some of those details are more from medieval tradition than they are from scriptures. So I think um, I don't fully endorse the movie in terms of, hey, all of this is historical. But I, I do think he's right that it was an incredibly brutal experience. And and so th- there's something uh, that we can really take away from the movie uh, there. At the same time, I want to say, let's be careful to recognize that the Gospels have a different reason for talking about Jesus's death rather than just talking about the violence. And the last thing I, I, I say about the movie is there's this... Uh, there's not a, a full recognition of the resurrection of Jesus, and the Gospels are very careful never to end the story just with Jesus on a cross or even Jesus in a tomb, uh, but the empty tomb and the physical experience of the, the disciples and apostles touching Jesus and, and the women at the tomb knowing that Jesus is alive. So, so we, we have to always um, say that the crucifixion ends in the resurrection and, and recognize that that's valuable in our theology.
1: So maybe as a last question and just kind of a a hypothetical, if you will, uh, have you ever thought about what archaeological work will look like 500 years from now in the future if the the Lord would tarry that long in returning?
0: I I will say, uh, to connect with your question, um, one of the things that archaeologists are doing now is when they come to a large site, they intentionally only excavate a portion of the site. Because everybody recognizes that what we can do now archaeologically, even compared to just say 50 years ago, is uh, it's so much better. Uh, modern technology can help us uh, study uh, pottery and understand exactly where clay is coming from, uh, where in a geographic region. We can, we can examine bones. We can look at DNA. We can, there's all sorts of things that have happened uh, in the last 50 years, some in the last 20, some in the last 10 years. And so that gives us a a great deal of hope that we'll have even better things that we can do, you know, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. And so excavators now are deliberately leaving part of the site saying, I'm going to take this as far as I can now with the current technologies we have. But I expect, you know, in the future, people will be able to do even more. Uh, One of the things I would love to see happen is there's there's kinds of ground penetrating radar and different methods that we have now that even without excavating, allow you to see under the surface, but they're they're very imperfect um, in ways that aren't always made obvious in popular media. You know, you go to a National Ge- Geographic site or something and all these new exi- uh, technologies sounded so exciting, but they're quite limited still. Um, so some of the best technologies will give you a good sense of what's underground, but not the depth of it. Or if they give you the depth, it, it's less accurate, the recording and and so those kind of technologies, boy, it'd be great to see, you know, a few hundred years in the future, what you could do without even digging stuff. The, because, uh, you know, the one of the, the dangers of digging is, again, you destroy everything you dig up. And so it'd be wonderful to be able to look at the surface of something and to know what's there before you even start digging. Um, that would be great.
1: Well, David, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today about archaeology and what it's like to be on a dig and uh, how it, fits with our Bibles and how it can really add to our understanding of the people and places and events that we read about in Scripture. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time.
0: Well, thank you, Matt. It's been a joy to be with you.
1: That was David Chapman on what it's like to be an archaeologist. For more, be sure to check out the ESV Archaeology Study Bible, on which David served as New Testament editor, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.